Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC. This episode is a Pillar and Ground confession episode where we seek to further understand and apply the truths in our Westminster Confession of Faith. We are continuing our study of the Trinity, Westminster Confession of Faith 2.3, and this is the second episode of three, most fittingly, uh, on the Trinity. And today we're going to be talking about heresies concerning the Godhead. And just to get us going, I want to read again Westminster Confession of Faith 2.3. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Justin Holcomb, in his excellent book, Know the Heretics, says this in the opening. Who is Jesus? Is he divine? Is he human? How does he relate to the God of the Old Testament? How do the divinity and humanity of Christ relate to his work in saving humanity? How is the fact that Christ was both human and God connected to how he rescues humanity? What does that rescue look like? How does Jesus save by example or by some supernatural intervention? These are the questions that the leaders and thinkers of the early church wrestled with after the time of the apostles. And as you might imagine, Holcomb says, the answers were far from clear-cut. Over the course of the first few centuries, a large number of theories were developed to try to explain all that the Bible has to say about God and humanity. But not all of these explanations were equally well-grounded. Many of them owed too much to the spirit of the times or cut out essential parts of the Bible in order to make the explanation fit. As we seek to recognize heresy concerning the doctrine of God, it is important to define some terms. Orthodoxy is the teaching that best follows the Bible and best summarizes what it teaches. Heresy is a choice to deviate from traditional teachings of the Bible for one's own insights and has compromised an essential doctrine. Notice the word essential doctrine. We, we don't need to be heresy hunters on every matter of disagreement. <laughs> there are some things we disagree on as believers, and yet those do not compromise essential doctrine. We should not mislabel every disagreement as heresy. Heretics compromise essential doctrine by seeking to make the Christian faith compatible with ideas that they find more appealing, often associated with pagan philosophy, rather than biblical revelation. I want us to consider just three heresies. There are many, uh, but I want to consider three of the more uh, major heresies concerning the Godhead. First, Sabellianism, also referred to as modalism. It asserted this. There is no distinction of the persons in the Godhead. They are just modes of a single being. The heretical view was established by Sibelius. He was a third century proponent of what we refer to as Sibelianism or modalism. He asserted that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, those were just labels for the three ways that God reveals himself. In other words, sometimes God appears as Father, sometimes he appears as Son, sometimes he appears as Spirit. And according to Sibelius, the Father and Son and Spirit were only three names for one and the same God, not three persons. 
It's the belief that God is one being with three masks or three faces. And these three modes have historically successive activity. In other words, first he appears as father, creator, and lawgiver. Then he appears as son, the redeemer. And then he appears as the spirit, the giver of life. A contemporary explanation of this view is God is like water because he can take three forms, three faces, liquid, steam, and ice. Now, the Orthodox response to this heretical view was there are many problems, but chief among them is the fact that God revealed himself with clear distinctions of persons. At the baptism, God reveals himself as Father when he speaks, and Son at the baptism and Holy Spirit coming down. As we mentioned earlier, disciples are commissioned to baptize in the the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons. By removing distinction of the persons, modalism removes any prospect of interaction or transaction between the members of the Trinity. In one of the clearest citations of distinction of person, Jesus calls on the Father as a separate witness in John 8.18. He says, I am the one who testifies for myself My other witness is the Father who sent me. This is a stunning statement because Jesus is fulfilling the sanction of the law that required two witnesses, which requires two persons. And Jesus says, I'm one witness and the Father's another. African theologian Tertullian, along with Hippolytus and Origen, developed terms that emphasize the unity of the Godhead as one substance, substantia, consisting in three persons, persona. And it is from Tertullian that we get the word trinity. The idea is certainly taught in the Bible, but the term is nowhere explicitly stated. It is Tertullian's work that later shaped the Athanasian Creed. He said this, We worship one God in trinity and trinity in unity. We neither confound the persons nor divide the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such as the Son, and such as the Holy Spirit. Now, why is it relevant for us to know about this heresy of Sabellianism? Well, first... It's a matter of biblical authority. We must believe about God how he has revealed himself. We don't have a choice to make our own thoughts. And God has revealed himself in Scripture in a particular way. It's unavoidable and clear when reading the Bible that there is distinction of persons in the Godhead. And thus Trinitarian theology is actually a matter of biblical authority. Secondly, In the work of redemption, we see very clearly a distinction. The Father plans, the Son executes, the Holy Spirit applies. Again, a matter of biblical authority. But last, the atoning work of Jesus is at stake. Without distinction of persons, who died on the cross? Did God die? Or was Jesus truly man... Or was he merely a form or an appearance of God as a man? If Jesus is not fully God and fully man, he cannot be the one mediator between God and man. That's why it's important for us to establish truth against this heresy.
Secondly, you have Arianism. Arianism establishes and claims that Jesus is a lesser God. The heretical view, as Justin Holcomb describes, he describes it in this way. Sudden chaos overtook Alexandria in 318. A riot broke out and people streamed into the street chanting, There was a time when Christ was not. Meanwhile, another large group of Christians stood their ground with the bishop against this movement, insisting that Christ is the eternal God along with the Father. And the whole controversy came down to one man, Arius. See, Arius was a proponent of the view that claimed that the Son and the Spirit are creatures of a different nature than the Father, and thus are subordinate to the Father. He promoted ontological subordination, something we clarified last week that is not true. He said that though the Son was a created being, subordinate to the Father, he still, Arius said, is G- Jesus, the Son, would be the most exalted being ever created by God. He used the language from the Bible wrongly, the firstborn of o- overall creation. It's known as adoptionism. So Arius said, if the Logos, the Son, is divine in the same sense that God the Father is divine, then God's nature would be changed by the human life of Jesus in time, and God would have suffered in him. So in light of Arianism saying Jesus is a, he's not God, but he is the most exalted being ever created by God, Constantine called the Council of Nicaea in 325 and called 318 bishops to resolve the situation. And in near unanimous fashion, they stood with Bishop Alexander. And thus we have the Nicene Creed. They added to the Apostles' Creed, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. And here it was, being of one substance, homoousius, with the Father. Nicene Trinitarianism denied that the Son and Spirit were ontologically subordinate, insisting that they were divine in the same sense as the Father. Athanasius became the foremost defender of the Trinitarian orthodoxy after this at great cost and great sacrifice. Now, why is this relevant to us? Well, number one, consider our worship of Jesus. If Jesus is a creature, as Arius proposed, even the most exalted creature, then to worship him is to violate the first and second commandment and to engage in idolatry, for we are not worshiping God. Secondly, the assurance of knowing who God is. Jesus is God in flesh, and because we know him, we know God. Without Jesus, we could not and would not know God. Hebrews 1.3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Exact. See, if Jesus is a creature and the highest exalted creature ever made by God, then I still don't really know what God's like because he's never come in the flesh, the exact representation. Lastly, our salvation depends on this. No creature can cancel the power of sin and death. Only the Creator can do this. Athanasius believed that Arianism made salvation impossible. As Justin Holcomb says, we are saved from God by God. 
or as we sing in Rock of Ages, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Thus, Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And that has implications for our worship, our assurance of who he is, and our salvation. And lastly, there's the heretical view of Apollinarius. This one is philosophically uh, dense, but he asserted that Christ may be human, but his mind is divine. How could the nature of Christ's humanity relate to his deity? That's where this view came from, this heretical view. Apollinarius, bishop of Laodicea in the 4th century, declared that Jesus was only partially human. In other words, Jesus' pure divine nature replaced the filthy mind of a typical human. And in an effort by Apollinarius to emphasize the full deity of Jesus Christ, he underemphasized and erred concerning his humanity. He argued that the Bible teaches that human nature is made up of a body, a sensitive soul, and a rational soul. The rational intellectual mind slash soul was identified as part of the higher nature known as the mind or consciousness. And Apollinarius said Jesus took on humanity only to the extent of assuming a human body and a sensitive soul. The logos or the eternal son replaced the rational intellectual soul that would have existed in a normal human person. As Stephen Nichols summarizes, in order to preserve Christ's deity, Apollinarius was unwilling to grant that Christ has a human will, which for Apollinarius could be nothing but sinful, and therefore he denies that Christ had a rational soul. In essence, the view claims Jesus was only partially human and that his human side leaned on his divine side. The orthodox response came from Gregory of Nazianzus, Archbishop of Constantinople. He fought against this view, emphasizing Christ's role as the second Adam. And this is a fantastic statement he makes. If only half of Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if his whole nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten and so be saved as a whole. Essentially, what Gregory said is this, a partial Christ does not offer salvation. The Council of Chalcedon in 451 finally answered it saying, Christ is one person in two natures, unmixed, unchanged, undivided, inseparable. Again, why is this relevant? Polynarianism undermines the saving work of Jesus. Gregory said, only a Christ who had all the elements of human nature could redeem all of man. And if every phase of man's nature were not redeemed, redemption would not be a fact. I love this. He says, what has not been assumed has not been healed. Jesus assumed all of human humanity, and thus he can heal us. It's also important because Apollinarianism does what we may tend to do. We tend to overemphasize the deity of Jesus. Many of us maybe actually believe the following if we were forced to articulate our view. You know, Christ looked like a man on the outside, but underneath he was God. 
that's that's a really poor view of of Jesus because Hebrews two seventeen through eighteen says, for this reason he is to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Christ, according to the scriptures, is fully human and fully God. He is not partially human who leaned on a divine mind. So those are three examples of heresies and why it's important for us to know orthodoxy. And I close with this great story. I was unaware of this till I read this uh, in R.C. Sproul's work, Truths We Confess. And it's about the glory of Patri. The Arians in their day used a method common to circulate their ideas. They composed rousing songs that promoted their views and insulted the Trinitarians. The Trinitarians responded by writing their own song. And historians tell us that at the height of the controversy, the Arians stood on one side of the river and sang, while the Trinitarians stood on the other side and sang, Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Today we tend to sing this song in worship, maybe in some somber reverence. But I want us to remember the next time you sing the Gloria Patri, it was a fight song for Trinitarian orthodoxy. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Pillar and Ground.